You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. All right, good morning, Midtown. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, my name is Justin Christopher. I'm the executive pastor here at Midtown. I want to welcome you, especially all you folks. It looks like I see, I see some new faces, so if you're visiting with us, particularly want to extend a welcome to you and do hope that you do what Kristen said and fill out that connection card just so we can get back in touch with you. I uh, would love to meet you after the service too. Um, one more welcome that I'd like to extend is if you're, if you're here, maybe you're just kind of checking out church again for the first time, maybe exploring faith uh, for the first time. We especially are glad that you're here and hope that you find Midtown to be a really safe place where you can ask questions, get to know people, and really explore your faith, uh, kind of walk this journey as many of us have as well. Uh, we're going to continue in our book, uh, study in the book of Daniel, and so we've been titled this series, Living Faithfully While Loving Well, and if you remember kind of the story of Daniel, is this period in the Bible called the captivity period, and so Judah, Israel has all been taken captive by this nation Babylon, and Daniel and some of his buddies are actually brought into the school to work for the king and under the king, and so we've been saying like one of the things that they were, they were trying to do was apply what they read in Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was a prophet at the time. And one of the things that Jeremiah wrote was he said that, you guys, when you get taken into captivity, it's going to be for 70 years. And during that time, you're supposed to seek the prosperity of the city, because if it prospers, you will prosper. And so Daniel is one of these guys in this book that's actually trying to walk this out. Like, how do we be in a captive land with people who believe very differently than they do, people who act very differently than they do? Yet, how can you still be faithful to God and still love them and seek the prosperity of the people around you in the city? And so that's what we're walking through as we go through Daniel. We're seeing Daniel do this, and last week we saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do this. And so we're going to continue uh, through that series. Today's message is a little bit different, though. It doesn't really hit on the, the idea of, like, how do we live in this faithful to God yet loving people well in a, in a culture that, that is different from what we as Christians believe. Today we're actually going to focus the story on this guy, Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar was the king, and you, you've heard him, you've, he's been in every chapter that we've read so far, and this is the last that we're going to hear of him. And this is about a 43-year period of a reign that he had. So this is a, decades of time are passing in these, these four chapters, and in this fourth chapter today, we're going to see something really remarkable uh, happen to him. Uh, you can see that God is faithfully pursuing him. Before I get into that, though, how many of you have uh, Astros fever? Are you excited about the Astros, some of you guys from Houston? Long-suffering, there's, the, there's our Red Sox fan. I knew, I knew Joe, yeah, Drew, there's a couple Sox fans too. But can you imagine what it's like to be like the long-suffering? You've got to have a little sympathy for him, right? Like 55 years of waiting, just hoping, and, and most of those like horrible years in horrible uniforms. I mean, just, just, the, just the worst possible situation, you know? They get to the NLCS twice and lose, and then they finally make it in 2005 to the World Series and get swept. And then they have 100 lost seasons back to back to back, the worst team. But then last year was it, right? It was finally the glory year. And, and you guys who are true Astros fans, you know what it's like to like hope for decades and decades and decades, hope beyond hope. But isn't it sweet once it happens? It's very sweet, right? You got guys like Kane that just drive from Austin to Houston just to be part of the millions of people that had the, part, the party in the streets when they came back, right? Well, that's a little bit what we're going to say, but in a much more meaningful way when we look at the life of Nebuchadnezzar, because there's this 43-year period of time where we see God continuing to pursue him, continuing to pursue him, showing him signs, showing him himself multiple times over, 
And now in this 35th year of his reign, something dramatic is going to happen. And we're going to see a God that is so patiently pursuing a pagan polytheist king. It's going to be wonderful. And so what I want us to do in particular is I hope to end a little bit early because at the end I want us to spend an extended time of worship because we're going to worship our God who patiently pursues each of us. He's done the same with us. So let me pray for us and we'll look at Daniel 4. God, we do want to just worship today. Uh, We want you to set our hearts on you. Remind us today through what you did in the life of this king that you're so patient and you're so faithful to pursue us. We pray that each one of us could think back upon our testimonies and each one who maybe is seeking and exploring their faith right now, that they too would evaluate their lives in the way that you're trying to get their attention. Thanks for being a God who tries to get our attention. In Jesus' name, amen. So like the other stories that we've read in Daniel so far, it's pretty long, so we're not going to like read the whole thing, but I'm going to look at a few verses and then I'll summarize and kind of tell you what's been happening. And then at the end, what I want to do is I want to look back, not just at chapter four, but I want to look back at all of Daniel one through four and look at the whole way that God had been pursuing Nebuchadnezzar the whole time. This chapter four is also kind of written like a poem, so you're going to see there's some weird parts in it that I'll try to explain as well. So starting in uh, chapter four, verse four, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at the home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And I had a dream that made me very afraid. I was lying in bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded the wise men of Babylon to be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. So here he is at the height of his kingdom. This is estimated that it was about the 35th year of his reign. And he had done some extensive work like taking over other nations, but then he actually was really well known for, for developing these cities and building this huge infrastructure, even building one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so he's at the height of his kingdom, contented and prosperous, yet God gives him this dream and stirs him up. And like we read in chapter two, he first brings these wise men in that are supposed to interpret the dream, but they can't do it. And so then what actually happens is then he goes, oh yeah, Daniel, <laughs> he's done this for me once before. This time, I'm not even going to make Daniel tell me what the dream was. I'm going to tell him the dream, and let's trust him to give us the interpretation. So he calls Daniel in, and then Daniel gives him, he says, okay, here's my dream, Daniel. So here was what the dream was. He dreams that there's this enormous tree, this giant tree that's branches like cover the whole earth, and then all the animals and all the peoples are fed by this fruitful tree that is the largest tree in all the earth. But then he says, he says this messenger pops into the scene, and this messenger says, We're going to chop this tree down, and we're going to cut it down all the way to a stump. We're going to put bronze and iron over it so it can't grow. It's going to be like this for seven years. And then he kind of, in the dream, he kind of personifies upon the stump, and it says now this person, instead of the stump, it says this person's going to be made to be drenched, to walk around like an animal, and to lose their mind for seven years. Pretty terrifying dream, right? Like, well, what would, what would this mean? Daniel, tell me what it is. And so now Daniel gets to interpret it. We pick up in verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. See, Daniel knows what it means, and you get a, a real small glimpse at Daniel's love for this king. Like, this is going to be bad news for the king, and he's terrified, and, and he cares for him. So he says to the king, or the king said to him, uh, do not let this dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar, Daniel, answers, my Lord, if only this dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. See, Daniel knew what the dream meant. 
He says to the king, like the king, king looks at him and says, I can tell you're disturbed by this too. Like, you don't want to tell me, but I'm giving you permission. Tell me what it says. And Daniel says, well, first of all, you are that tree, Nebuchadnezzar. Like, your kingdom is the best kingdom of all. You've been the greatest king of all time, and, and you're expanding all over the earth, and all of the nations are fed, and all the animals are fed through you. But then he says, also, Nebuchadnezzar, you're that stump that God's going to come to you and humble you and chop you down, and you're the one that for seven years is going to be drenched and wet. You're the one who's going to lose your mind, and you're the one who's going to act like an animal for seven years. Pretty cheery news, right? Daniel, I love that he was bold enough to say what it meant, but kind enough. We've been talking about this as we've gone through the series. We won't emphasize it today, but both speaking grace and truth, he was truthful, yet kind, and he honored the king as he was telling him this news. And then we move on to verse 27, and here's what he says. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what's right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your, your prosperity will continue. How bold, right? Daniel to stand before the king and say, here's the interpretation now, here's just my words. This isn't even interpretation. This is me telling you what I think you should do. Please accept my advice and repent. Because even if you were to repent, perhaps this wouldn't happen. God could not let this happen if you would turn right now, Nebuchadnezzar. So bold, yet so true. And God extends incredible patience to him because you go on and read the very next verse in verse 28. It says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. So talk about patience. God gives him this dream. Daniel gives the proper interpretation. Daniel's in his life and calls him to repent, and he still doesn't. And 12 months later, he still hasn't. He's still looking over his kingdom and thinking about how great he is and not giving honor to God. And what happens? Exactly what God said. And so it says at that moment, he lost his mind. He lost his mind, and for the next seven years, he crawled around like an animal, it mentions that his hair grows out really long, his fingernails grow out really long, and he lives like an animal for seven years, completely humbled by God. And we pick up the story at the end of that seven years. At the end of that time, verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with his hand, does what as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? See what happens? He finally gets it. He finally believes. I mean, look at his confession. His confession is saying, I'm not king. God is king. God's kingdom is the one that lasts. His confession is that man is nothing. I am nothing. All this pride when I was speaking and looking out upon my land and thinking that I was the one who did all this, I don't have that anymore. What is man that God is mindful of him? And he also proclaims God's justice. 
that this thing that happened to me, that was God's justice. I deserved it. And as what you might think was judgment, now what does he see it as? What looks as judgment was actually mercy. What appeared as judgment for seven years, now he can look back at it and say, that was God's mercy on me. And I believe. And what's great about this chapter, I really didn't say it at the start, is that chapter 4 in Daniel is actually a letter that Nebuchadnezzar is writing to the nations. So now the king has come to faith. He submitted his life to God and called God his king. And now he sends a letter to the nations saying, this is the truth. This is God. His life was radically changed. So I want to take a step back and then think about the whole book of Daniel as we hear this story. How is it this came to place? How is it that God continued to pursue this guy over 43 years of his kingdom? Because if you go back, you see that in Daniel chapter 1, they they're brought the captives in, and Daniel's already, by his lifestyle and the way that he's choosing to eat and the convictions that he has, is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 2, God shows up in a, in a dream that no one can interpret it, but Daniel interprets the dream, and he makes a, somewhat of a profession of faith in the end of chapter 2. Same thing chapter 3. You've got chapter 3 where... He throws the guys in the, the fiery furnace, and he sees them not get burned. And then when they come out, he gives glory to God again. Yet at the whole time, he was still polytheist, believing in many gods. But ultimately, God got him. So how did it happen? I'm going to suggest three things that, that, are, that are at play, and I believe that they're at play in all of our lives and all of our stories. The first thing that God gives is he gives faithful witnesses. He will give us faithful witnesses that point us to himself. The second thing he'll give us is he'll give us divine experiences, experiences that we say, no doubt, God is real. God is in here somehow. And the third thing that God will give us is he'll give us humbling circumstances. And I would bet that as we continue, I want you guys to reflect on your story and how faithful witnesses, how uh, divine experiences and humble circumstances were a part of your salvation, were a part of your story. And I want to speak real briefly, if I can, to any of you who are just seeking If you're seeking and not yet put your faith in Jesus, I want you to wrestle with this question, like, how is God trying to get my attention? How has God brought me faithful witnesses or divine experiences or humble circumstances? And my hope is that today you would believe, that today would be your Daniel day to believe. Those of you who are following Jesus, my hope is that as we walk through this, that you'll think about those in your life that have been faithful witnesses, that you'll remember those divine experiences, that you'll also reflect on the humble circumstances, and that we can end today in worship of a God who's been so patient and so faithful in pursuing us. Let's look back at those three things real briefly. First thing, faithful witnesses. So the whole book of Daniel starts with Nebuchadnezzar being the one that says, I'm going to get these guys and bring them as captives into my land, and they're going to come serve under me. But when you look at it and take a step back, you see what really has happened? God's the one that's orchestrated all of it. God was the one that was kind enough to put Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar's life, put Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He thought he was ruling and he's bringing things captive, but behind the scenes, it's God who's placing his people, his witnesses around those that need to hear of him. It's amazing. And this is the way that God always works. Like God's favorite way and almost his only way to share the good news of Jesus with the world is through people. Raise your hand if you came to faith because a person led you to faith. It's going to be like 99% of us. There's some people that have weird dreams and some really, really weird stuff too, so it's not everybody. 
But God's primary way is through people, right? He puts faithful witnesses around us. He did for Nebuchadnezzar. I look back at my life and at a period in uh, ninth grade where my parents got divorced and uh, my best friend moved away and a couple other things contributed to me actually turning a pretty dark direction and hanging with a bad group of friends. I had another friend that moved back to my hometown named Rob Maddox. And while I was kind of getting caught up in this group that was heading a pretty bad direction, Rob Maddox popped back into my life after being gone for a couple years and he was a faithful witness to me, always pointing me to God, telling me that God had better stuff for me, telling me I was making bad choices that weren't in my best interest and telling me that God loved me. Later, I, I was in a, uh, a Bible study with a guy from, from Crew High School that just happened to be at my high school, did a thing, a chapel service for the football team, and somehow I got talked into going to this Bible study and became friends with this man, and I got to witness his life and his marriage, and he was the one that led me to faith. Faithful witnesses that God puts in your life. Like, who would that be for you? Who has that been for you? Or who is it for you right now? God will put faithful witnesses in your life. I know that many of you guys, I know your stories, and I know there's students here that could point to a classmate, that would point to a dorm mate, that that was the person who was a faithful witness in their life that led them to faith. I know some of you here would point to a neighbor, would point to someone that, as a coworker that pointed you to faith because that was God's faithful witness that God arranged to put in your life at that time. And best of all, I know there's many of you who you would point to your faithful witness as being your parents, because that's the best testimony. You guys who came to faith through your parents, you can tend to think, well, I don't really have that great of a testimony. No, no, that's the best testimony. That is the way that God intends it, that your parents were your faithful witnesses that led you to faith. Faithful witnesses that God gives us. Nebuchadnezzar had Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and get this, he had them in his life for 43 years. For 43 years, these guys were continuing to be faithful witnesses until ultimately he responded with true, genuine faith. So who's your Daniel? Who was your Daniel? And let me maybe flip the question just a bit and say, to whom are you a Daniel? You who are following Jesus, where does God have you? Because you're a faithful witness where God has you. At Midtown, you hear us uh, often maybe use this word we call people groups. It's just a, a term to say that we really believe that wherever God has us, where we live, work, and play, he's placed us there for a reason, and a part of our role is to be faithful witnesses to the people that we live with, the people that are neighborhoods, the people that we work with, the people that we have classes with. That's just the whole idea of a people group, that God has placed you in a place for a reason. I love in Acts 17 the way that Paul describes it. When he's talking to the Athenians, in part of his sermon, he says this, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, did you arrange for these captives to be brought into your kingdom? No. God arranged for these to be brought as faithful witnesses to you. Why did God do this? God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. Why is God not far from anyone because anyone is not far from us, because we're the faithful witnesses that he has placed. Let's give glory to God when we reflect and worship a minute about the faithful witnesses that he's given us. Second thing he gives us is divine experiences. We've already said it briefly, but in chapter 2 and chapter 3, I mean, God goes out of his way to try to show himself to Nebuchadnezzar. We won't rehash the whole story, but in Daniel 2, 
when he has this incredible dream. This time he tells the people, I'm not even going to tell you the dream and let you interpret this time. You have to actually interpret the dream. You have to tell me the dream and interpret it. And no one can do it. But Daniel goes away and he prays with his friends and he seeks God and God gives him the vision, gives him the dream and tells him what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar has this incredible experience to say, God is real. He says, your God is the God of gods. The next chapter that we studied last week, he throws these three guys in a fiery furnace, and all of a sudden there's a fourth one, fourth one among them, and they come out unscathed, and he gives glory to God again, saying, your God is the most high God. Your God is God. Incredible divine experiences that should have led him to believe, but it wasn't quite enough in his case. Here it is, a polytheist, even in this chapter, in chapter 4, here's the way, when he calls Daniel to come interpret this dream in the chapter that we're looking at now, here's how he calls him. He says, I want to call Daniel to interpret the dream because the spirit of the holy gods is on you. You see, he's still polytheist. He still thinks Daniel's like working some magic or something, that he's, one of, he's got one of the gods. So he still doesn't believe, but he calls Daniel in and has this third incredible experience. It's amazing that God will give us these. God doesn't do it all the time, but often he will give us some divine encounter, something that we can say without a doubt, like, I believe that God is real, or I believe in Jesus because of this thing that he's given. Now, it should be pointed out that divine experiences don't naturally lead to faith. They don't often lead to faith. They didn't with Nebuchadnezzar, right? I think about the Israelites. I always am baffled when I'm reading Exodus, and I see them get delivered from all these plagues, and you see them walk across the Red Sea, like the seas part, and they walk across. And then later, they're building a golden calf, right? They witnessed all this stuff and had these experiences, yet it didn't produce the genuine, long-lasting faith. Or you think mostly, I think of Jesus, that he could do these miracles that we read about in the Gospels, these true accounts of Jesus' life. And some would choose to believe and follow him. Others would choose not to, even when he rose from the dead. That he would rise from the dead and some would still not believe. Even one of his disciples, doubting Thomas, we know him as. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I can touch his hands. And God was gracious and he gave Thomas this divine experience. He, he showed up in a room and said, Thomas, I know what you need to see. Go ahead, touch. Touch my hands. And at that moment, Thomas touches his hands and it says he falls down and he says, my Lord and my God, I believe. And then Jesus says, well, blessed are those who don't see, and yet still believe. Sometimes God will give us a touching your hands kind of experience, but often he says, blessed are you who believe that don't see in that way. I know a few testimonies in our church, and I thought of one. Uh, some of you guys know Rachel Alvarez. She's at the women's retreat. She shared her testimony maybe like two years ago or so at church, so you might remember this, but her story was that she grew up in a great Christian home and was really walking away from the Lord and Pretty, going a pretty bad direction in high school until she and her sister were in her car and driving down I-10 in Houston and flipped the car four times. She gets out of the car with not a scratch, and when she gets out of the car, one of the first responders is this guy that's there, just a random dude, parks his car and gets out and gets right in her face and says, you see that car? God saved your life. You better turn your life back to him or something worse is going to happen. <laughs> and that was her divine experience that changed her life, <laughs> Right? Or I think of my friend Jordan. Uh, Jordan since moved away. I wish he was here with us. But my friends and I had been a faithful witness in Jordan's life for dozens of years. He grew up in a very atheistic home that was antagonistic toward Christianity. Didn't believe that there was a God ever until he's camping 
uh, when he's about 30 years old just camping, and he he's just has this incredible dream where there's, that God is like hanging him over hell, and he cries out to God, and God saves him. And for him, that was his, he changed from atheist to, to theist that day, like he needed this divine experience. And in my faithful witness to Jordan, I would, I would try to read books with him, like Case for Christ and other things like that. And, and he always just never bought into any of the different arguments, but just seemed to need this experience. So I just started praying, like, well, God, give him an irrefutable experience that, that would lead him to faith in you. And about three or four years later, he comes to me and says, I need help interpreting this dream that I had. And I can't go into the details because part of it's really related to a specific issue in his life. But suffice it to stay at the very end of the dream, he's running from all these demons that are chasing him, and he calls out Jesus, and all the demons flee. And I said, Jordan, what do you need an interpretation for on this, man? <laughs> like, like, believe. And so I met with him, and, and Jake actually was the one that got to, to lead him to faith and actually making his uh, confession of faith through prayer. But sometimes God will give us those experiences. So I ask you, what are your experiences? Or maybe put this way, like, how is God trying to get your attention? How did he try to get your attention? How is he trying to get your attention now? If you're out there and you're, you're seeking and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, like, how is God revealing himself to you? How is he giving you divine experiences to make himself known? And you who have put your faith in Jesus, when you reflect back on it, what do you know that God did to make himself known to you? Sometimes it's in really powerful ways, like those that I just described, but more often, it's through little things like asking God to deliver you from a circumstance, and he does, and you give honor to him because he has, or it's an answered prayer of some sort. But one really common way is just in the midst of worship, like we're going to do in a minute, that, that you just experience God and you feel him in such a way that you know, no, God is real. I need him. God will give us those divine experiences. And lastly, maybe the least fun to talk about, is God will give us humbling circumstances. In chapter 4, God loves Nebuchadnezzar so much. He's given him faithful witnesses. He's, he's given these divine experiences, but he knows, like, the thing that I have to do for Nebuchadnezzar in his case is I'm going to give him a humbling circumstance. That He would actually make this guy mentally ill and put this on him for seven years just to break him. And this isn't God's first way. <laughs> this happens after 35 years of resistance. And like I said before, what, what looks like judgment when you're on the other end of it and you've come to faith, you'll say, that was not judgment. That was God's mercy on me. That's how he interpreted it. God will give us example. Like I thought of a couple of just broad categories of examples of humbling circumstances. This could be uh, any, but these are among some that I've seen God use to grab people's attention. It can be illness or disease, sickness. It can be breakups or divorces, can be failure or like the death of a, of a dream, a hope, can be a loss of a job or bankruptcy, debt, can even be uh, addiction and sin and, and actually reaping the consequences of sin in your life. God will use those things to humble us and it will feel like judgment, but ultimately it's God's mercy. Have you experienced that? So part of your story, I know it's part of two people that I spoke to this week. One is my dad. Uh, my dad came to faith in Christ 11 years ago after my brother and I and my mom praying for him for 18 years. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic, and uh, 11 years ago, he got, finally got 
pulled over and got a DUI and got put in jail. And when he got put in jail, he describes that as his humbling circumstance. It's fun for me to talk to him this week. I said, Dad, can I tell you your story? And he said, yeah, I'd love, to, love for you to. And I said, tell me, what, what was the worst? And he just said, just the, the shame of being in this jumpsuit. He said, all I can remember is like having to lay on this concrete floor with other dudes in my cell and the brokenness of that. That was on a Saturday. He got out on a Sunday. My brother and I strongly encouraged him to go to a group called Celebrate Recovery, which was at a church that was right next to where he lived. To our surprise, he went, and he said that was actually the worst, to go there and that first day just be so broken and to tell your whole story. But that was the day that everything changed for him. He came to faith. He hasn't had a drink in 11 years. I got to give him his 10-year chip just a, just a few months or almost a year ago now. And he describes this humbling circumstance as what? As God's mercy, not judgment. That's what God had to do to get a hold of my dad. I'll let him tell you the details specifically, but Drew's a, a new brother that's been part of our church here the last couple of weeks. I spoke with him this week because last week after, Dan, uh, after Jake taught on Daniel 3, Drew came up to Jake and said, I love the book of Daniel. I was actually saved because I was in a sermon when someone did a, uh, did a story on Nebuchadnezzar in, in Daniel chapter 4. I said, okay, great. Um, I got to hear about this story. And he told me just the story about how God really humbled him, took away everything that he cared most about until he walks into a church one day and hears a pastor teaching on this passage about how God will humble you to bring you to faith. And he put his faith in Christ and has been walking with him since. It's amazing what appears at judgment is really mercy. So what about you? Can you point to a time where God used suffering or humble circumstances to lead you to genuine, deeper faith? Can you point to a time when God humbled you? I love the way that Hebrews talks about the way that God does this in a loving way. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we've respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, understatement, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. This is how far God will go to love us. This is how far our God will go after 43 years of pursuing a pagan, polytheistic, conqueror, ruler of the world. And I'm here to tell you that God loves you the same. He's pursued you the same. He's going to continue to pursue you the same. You might ask, well, like, how do I know? How do I know? Well, you know because he's given you faithful witnesses, divine experiences, and humble circumstances but what he's done more than that is he's given you his very son. You can't argue with that. That's the most proof that you can ever have that God loves you, that God passionately pursues you, that his son would die on the cross for your sins, for my sins. Jesus said it the most clear way that I know how to say it in John chapter 3 when he's speaking with this religious leader. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Whoever believes, that's all we have to do is believe, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that God's patiently pursuing you? You know because He sent His Son to die for you. And if we would just put our faith in Him, we'd be received into His kingdom. We'd be brought back and reconciled to relationship with Him. I want to take a moment and speak to you if you've not done that, if you've not put your faith in Him, if you've not believed. I want to remind you that God loves you. God so loved the world that He gave His Son. And then I want to urge you to believe, even today. I'm going to say a few more words in a minute, but first I just want to pause and I want to pray a prayer. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus, you can pray this prayer with me and you can put your faith in Him today. Let's take a minute to pray that prayer. Father, I thank You for giving me faithful witnesses, divine experiences and humble circumstances. Mostly, I thank you that you gave me Jesus to pay the penalty for my sins. Today, I call out to you as God. I tell you that I need you. And I put my faith in Jesus to forgive me. In his name I pray, amen you prayed that prayer for the first time, I'd love to talk with you afterward, and I'd love for you to indicate on your card or something like that just so that we can get back in community with you and get you with some other people who can help you continue to grow in your faith. Now, let me speak to those of you who are looking at this from the backwards perspective in the sense that you can look back and see how God has done all of this. Let's let this be cause for worship. As we worship here in a moment, let's remember the faithful witnesses, the divine experiences, the humble circumstances, and mostly, let's remember Jesus the ultimate proof that God loves us and is patiently pursuing us. We'll do so by taking communion. As we take communion, remember what Christ has done for us. We practice open communion so anyone can come to the front or back and take any time during these next couple songs. I'd urge you to look back at your story and to worship God this morning. One last thing. We sing uh, this song called uh, Reckless Love. We're going to sing that in worship today. There's that part, you know, where it says that he leaves the 99. I'm sure most of you know what that reference is, but, yeah, but it's, perhaps you don't. It's from Luke 15 when Jesus is telling parables about how God will leave, that he's got 100 sheep and one goes wandering off. He'll leave the 99 and faithfully, patiently pursue the one that's gone astray. And he tells these three consecutive stories about that being what our God is like, that he goes after us like that, that he'll leave the 99 to go chase down the one. But what's unique in each story ends with rejoicing. He says, even the angels rejoice when one person turns their life to God. And so that's the kind of rejoicing that the angels are doing for anyone who put their faith in Christ today. That's the kind of rejoicing that happened on the day that we put our faith in Christ. And it's the kind of rejoicing that I'd implore us to do as we worship here uh, together with the rest of our time. Let's worship. I'll pray. God, you're so faithful at pursuing us. Remind us again today of your great love for us. You're so patient with King Nebuchadnezzar, waiting 43 years, continuing to show yourself to him until he ultimately believes. You know you've done the same with us and pray that we reflect on that today and, and give you the due worship as the one God who loves us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. 
you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.